Good morning, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today in our Throwback Thursday segment, In Jerusalem, author Liz Harris goes beyond the political and religious implications of Israeli-Palestinian relations to examine the impact generations of conflict have had on the lives of individuals and families on both sides in the region. Also this morning, retail sales increases this Christmas are projected to barely outpace inflation. What about the other big spending category of the season? We have results from Bankrate's survey on holiday travel. And to your health this morning, myopia, or nearsightedness, is becoming an epidemic, particularly among children. I'll tell you how to spot the warning signs and what to do about it. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Thursday, October 19th, 2023. More American workers are back in the office. Work from home rates in the U.S. have dropped to their lowest level since the beginning of the pandemic. According to the latest census data, Fewer than 26% of households still have someone working remotely at least one day a week. Fewer than 26%. So less than one in four households have someone working remotely at least one day a week. That is a sharp decrease from the peak of 37% in early 2021. Going a bit further with this, data also shows there are only seven states and Washington, D.C., which have a remote work rate above 33%. So in only seven states in D.C., one in three uh, people work from home at least part of the time. All 50 states have seen work from home rates fall from their pandemic highs. So... And I say that in the interest of uh, full disclosure, we are originating the program from the home studio this morning. So (laughs) I I am working from home, but apparently I am in the increasing minority when that comes to that, I guess. So, you know, one thing that has gone up since the start of the pandemic, hoarding. This was very interesting. According to uh, new research, hoarding has been on the rise since the start of the COVID pandemic. Before 2020, between 2 and 3% of the world's population could be considered obsessive hoarders. Now, that number is up to 4%. They say that those who were already suffering with compulsive behaviors, may those behaviors may have worsened during the lockdown. It says the pandemic was very difficult a very difficult experience for all involved, and thus we saw increased rates of all stress reactions, including uh, compulsive behaviors such as hoarding behaviors. This is according to Dr. David Nathan. In addition to the mental distress, hoarding can pose a serious fire hazard, increases the risk of falls in homes with older people particularly, but interesting that hoarding has gone up uh, quite quite significantly since the uh, start of the pandemic here. So here is something you may want to uh, think about as you are just getting up and starting your day. When was the last time you replaced your toothbrush? For many people, the answer is far too long ago. 
The average person, according to Dr. Kevin Sands, the average person should be swapping out for a new toothbrush every three to four months. This ensures, he says, that the bristles are still effective and bacteria accumulation on your toothbrush is minimal. So every three to four months, has it been longer than that? The American Dental Association echoes those guidelines and adds that you should also replace your toothbrush more often than that if the bristles are visibly matted or frayed. So check your toothbrush this morning. And a couple of other items here among the first things you need to know this morning, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day. Do you have a Halloween costume picked out yet? This year's Halloween spending is estimated to reach $12.2 billion. Billion with a B as in big bucks, $12.2 billion. Costumes alone will account for... A little over $4 billion of that. Uh, Let's see here. Um, Now, uh, according to their poll of more than 1,000 adults, Retail Me Not found 79% of people say they are dressing up this season for Halloween. Um, The blockbuster Barbie... One of the top inspirations, which I thought was interesting because the other day we had the story saying that Barbie wasn't necessarily going to be huge. But this survey says, indeed, it will be 16 percent of those in the survey said that they are donning a Barbie inspired look for Halloween, although the number one response for costume inspiration are the Hocus Pocus movies. My wife was just watching uh, Hocus Pocus last night on uh, TV. 18% say they're uh, using Hocus Pocus, the Hocus Pocus movies as the inspiration. Um, Wednesday, the Netflix series Wednesday is the second most popular pop culture inspired Halloween choice this year at 17%. So both of those ahead of Barbie. Um, Stranger Things and the Super, Mario's, uh, Super Mario Brothers movie are at 14% in terms of uh, inspiration for Halloween. Um, And Top Gun Maverick is a a popular inspiration as well, even though that film has been out for a couple of years now. But uh, it's kind of interesting. Uh, Other popular costume inspirations uh, reference Taylor Swift and ChatGPT, both of which have been very much in the news this year. I'm not sure how you dress as chat GPT, but that's what they say. All told, 68% of those in the survey doing some kind of shopping for the holiday, as we mentioned, um, more than $12 billion being spent on the spooky holiday. Candles, pumpkins, indoor decorations, topping the list of purchases, outdoor decorations, costumes, uh, also ranked as much ha- must-haves. A third of those polled, say that they are reusing decor from last year and or returning to a costume that they have previously worn to try and cut down on the costs. And pet costumes have seen a huge surge in popularity as well. So, pet costumes. And lastly, among the first things you need to know this morning, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day, something to think about, especially as we come into home heating season here, 
A new report by the personal finance website WalletHub finds that, by the way, uh, October is National Energy Awareness Month, and we've seen prices go up at the pump. We're coming into home heating season. Energy awareness top of mind in the month of October. This uh, Wallet Hub report finds that the most energy efficient state is Utah, which I thought was kind of interesting. Utah. Now, by the way, they're looking at uh, both home and auto uh, efficiency, home and automobile efficiency in terms of energy consumption. Massachusetts took second place, Vermont third on the list. At the bottom of the list, South Carolina was found to be the least energy efficient state. And Ohio ranks 21st overall. Says the average U.S. family spends at least $2,000 per year on utilities. According to the U.S. Department of Energy, with heating and cooling accounting for more than half of those utility bills. Uh, Last year, the average consumer also spent another $3,120 on motor fuel and oil. The Department of Energy estimates that adopting energy-efficient measures in the home could reduce a family's utility costs by as much as 25%, and a more fuel-efficient vehicle could save the average driver about $950 per year. So this ain't chump change. Something to think about on this uh, National Energy Awareness Month in October. Ohio overall, the 21st most energy-efficient state. There you go, some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Thursday morning started. WFIN News, I'm Matt Demchek. Your WTOL 11 weather. Showers are possible today with a high in the low 60s. Showers possible tonight, a low in the low 50s. The Finley Rotary Club presented its 2023 Golden Apple Awards to three area teachers for their teaching excellence. The winner at the high school level was Jason Wagner, art teacher at Finley High School. We caught up with him after the ceremony and asked what he loves most about teaching. I love working with the kids every day and seeing what they come up with and uh, trying to inspire the creativity in them uh, to move forward in life and solve problems creatively and uh, you know set really high expectations so that way they, uh, they are motivated to be the change. You can get more on the three finalists and the nine semifinalists of the Golden Apple Awards in the story on our website. This is National School Bus Safety Week. This year's theme is School Bus Safety Starts With Me. This week serves as a reminder to drivers, students, and school bus drivers of the important role they all have in ensuring children's safety. The State Highway Patrol says drivers approaching a stopped school bus are required to stop at least 10 feet from the bus. Drivers cannot start driving again until the bus starts moving again. Children must also look both ways before crossing the road. WTOL 11's Amanda Fay reporting. The city of Finley will be offering a bulk trash drop-off for Finley residents from Thursday, November 2nd to Saturday, November 4th. Dumpsters will be located at the Public Works Department at 330 North Quarry Street, where city residents may dispose of unwanted debris. The city says it encourages residents to take advantage of this opportunity to keep the community clean. The undefeated Ohio State football Buckeyes are preparing to take on an undefeated Penn State team this weekend at the Shoe, and university officials are sharing how they plan to keep people safe with the flood of fans coming to Columbus.
The police department is partnering with local agencies to ensure all bases are covered. As always, metal detectors will be in place at entry gates, and there is a no-bag policy, with the exception of small bags no larger than 5 by 8 by one Carly Dion at Ohio Stadium. And that Ohio State-Penn State game gets underway at noon Saturday at Ohio Stadium. Remember, you can always get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. So our cover story today is our Throwback Thursday feature, and with good reason. The conflict between Israelis and Palestinians has been ongoing for decades, generations of conflicts. And despite efforts over the years to broker peace in the region, it has always been, at best, a tense peace. And of course, earlier this month, that tension erupted into all-out war again. Now, I don't pretend to understand all of the dynamics at play in this, but what I do know is that the real people and the real families who live there have been impacted in ways that the rest of us can only imagine. I mean, the rest of the world debates this issue of Israeli-Palestinian relations on political talk shows. It's a talking point for us. But for those who live in the region, it is their lives, very real lives, impacted by all of this. Acclaimed writer Liz Harris knows that. She is the author of the book In Jerusalem, Three Generations of an Israeli Family and a Palestinian Family. And back in November of 2019, she spent some time here in town for a presentation at the University of Findlay. Given that this topic is so timely now with the news of the day, it is today's Throwback Thursday. Now, in this book, you uh, take a really personal approach to what is a highly emotional issue. You actually followed these families for more than a decade, I understand. Correct. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Um, well, um, one of the recent reviewers of my book said that there are so many books about this problem and people mm-hmm. seem to know about it that when she has to review one, she suffers from whiplash. Yeah. And that is true. But I think most of the books that are written about the subject and most of what people know is from high uh, looking down. Mm-hmm. It's policy, right. how the policy has changed, what it is, if it's good, if it's bad, and it's very polarized as mm-hmm. the whole world seems to be right now. Sure. And that's been that way for decades. Um but how people live under these conflicts, over these conflicts, what happens to them, um, is a more mysterious question. Unfortunately, people tend to look at each other in stereotypical ways. Right. It's so much truth in that region that both sides call the the Israelis call the Palestinians the other side. Mm-hmm. The Palestinians call the Israelis the other side. Yeah. That's not the name of a human person. That's mm-hmm. an abstraction. Yeah. And I, I, part one of the reasons I did this book was to bring to life the realities of living under this history. And there's also, as you know, a lot of history in the book right. because that's the context of the people's sure. lives. Sure. And, and that's how they're impacted. Now, uh, as we mentioned, you look at families on both sides yes. uh, of this. Did you choose the families at random or, or how did you uh, how did you select the, the families to uh, follow? With, with great difficulty. Mm-hmm. Um, I... Well, first of all, um, the original Palestinian family that I went, that I worked with, I did not 
end up with because they had a messy divorce in the mm. in the middle of the time I was there. Mm. And as I say in the book, it became a sort of telenovela, and that's not what I was yeah. writing about. Although, but again, that demonstrates the humanity of the of the whole exactly, thing. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, how how I went about it was I, I knew almost no Israelis. I went to the only Israeli I knew. I knew one Palestinian, and they mm. introduced me to various people. Mm. Most people did not want me in their life. Would you want me in your life for yeah. a decade? I don't think yeah. so. I wouldn't want someone like me in my <laughs> life for a decade. Yeah. But I, I, I kept looking for families that had a range of belief in what was going on or a range of religiosity or a range of politics. Mm. And I found that in both the families. What did you learn that uh, most surprised or intrigued or particularly fascinated you through the course of all of this? Oh, my. Uh, really, almost everything I learned fascinated me because I knew so little when I started out mm-hmm. there. Um, I think I was most surprised by how little each group knew about the other. Mm. I mean, they never encountered one another except at checkpoints, Mm -hmm. which was nasty, um, and malls, which is, you know, it's it's not a real social place. Right. Um, And... um, so that, I, I, yes. So that uh, that division goes all the way down. I mean, we talk about how we look at this, uh, take a view of it from a top down thing, but that really does filter down to these these lives. Yes, as I say in the book, we have there are there are two trauma, traumatized societies. The Israelis are still traumatized from the Holocaust, and the Palestinians are traumatized by the Israelis, and that's mm-hmm. it's like a metronomic thing that goes even today. Yeah, it just doesn't stop yeah so the the goal here is to kind of personalize what is uh, often for the rest of us thought of as we said like a, a political debate how does this help uh, us better understand what is really at the heart of this uh, conflict well um i i hope it i i hope by laying out the history in very um close detail about how we got from idealistic zionism to this state of unacceptable occupation, which is happening now, um, wh- how we got there. I think the book lets people see. Uh, this is what I wondered when I started the book, mm-hmm. because I'm a um, secular Jew. My parents are not very politi- were not very political, but, but, but they were very liberal. Mm-hmm. And I knew no people... Yeah, like the Israelis. Well, that actually is one of the the questions I I wanted to to bring up, and it, because you are Jewish, yes. uh, and 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 this question kind of gets to the heart of how challenging this issue is. Uh, there will be those who say, "Well, can you truly be objective in uh, portraying both sides of the issue?" Yes, I can. <laughs> no, but, but again, that kind of goes to the heart of you know what we're talking about and and how you know deep rooted this uh, conflict is. Yes, I, I I don't actually I you know although I'm called a journalist, I work for most of my life as a writer for the New Yorker, and um, I don't pretend to be objective. I do want to be fair, mm-hmm. and I think I am fair. Um, but my you know the the idea that you are a neutral observer is not my idea of good writing in particular. Right. Um, so, I mean, on on the contrary, I mean, I I couldn't understand how d- Jewish people could behave that way toward a whole population. The mm. wall itself, for example, yeah, uh, was a, such a shock to me for people o- themselves not so long ago 
kept behind walls. Yeah. I, I often wonder, especially for a book like this, did it ultimately turn out to be what you expected it to be? Well, you know, part of the reason I'm a writer altogether is that I don't know what I think in a deep way until I write it. I mean, I have thoughts, but they're, they, they're sort of skimming along on a certain level until I push it. Um, nothing ever turns out to be what yeah. I expected to be. No, no, yeah. And you know this. You go to a place, you have, I mean, our mental archives are overcrowded with so much, so many things. Yeah, you have those preconceived notions. Right, and yeah. there, I mean... There they are. Yeah. And when you're disabused of those things, for example, I mean, I have many friends on, on the left who think, you know, who are angry at the Israelis for the way they treat the Palestinians, mm-hmm. but they see this person called the Israeli. Mm-hmm. There is no, there's no American, right. there's no French person, there's right. no Israeli. So I, I don't pretend that these are, you know, this stands for everybody. This is, these are just two families mm-hmm. who went, and the, and they, the Israeli family, very well-educated academics are like a lot of Israelis. And mm-hmm. the Palestinian families who lost their land in Lifta in 1948 and then more land that they had in 67 are like a lot of Palestinians, mm-hmm. you know, in that, in the sense that what they went through is very universal yeah. there. But getting to know those families on that personal level, does it give you any hope that there ultimately could be a peace between the Jews and the Arabs? I wish I could say it did. Yeah. Getting to know the families meant getting to know that people long for peace, which mm-hmm. is, you know, both families long for peace. And both families, especially the Israelis in a way, um, you know, the middle generation Israeli man unfortunately died two weeks after I handed the book in. But, you know, he was a political scientist who wrote about these issues a lot. They all have hope, but not much of it. And I... I is is that because do they do the people that you that you talk about in the book do they generally hold the same views uh, as their leaders or you know how are their views about the conflict different being on the on the, the front lines of it if you will the leaders on both sides are not very much in touch with their constituents hmm. I'll say that about both sides um, they don't there's a lot of distrust yeah. And uh, nobody thinks they're being led by people who can help them. No, mm. Neither side. Again, our conversation with acclaimed writer Liz Harris about her book, In Jerusalem, Three Generations of an Israeli Family and a Palestinian Family. Our conversation from back of November of 2019 when she was in town for a presentation on the book at the University of Findlay. It really is fascinating. Again, very timely as uh, the situation has erupted uh, in Israel and in Gaza once again just in the uh, past couple of weeks. We have a link up to the book at our webpage. Go to goodmornings.net. Today's Throwback Thursday. Well, as we approach the holiday season, we often hear a lot of predictions and projections about retail spending. Bankrate is out with their latest forecast for the other big economic category of the holidays, travel spending. Senior industry analyst Ted Rossman joins us once again. And probably not surprisingly, uh, you're, you're seeing inflation having an impact on many people's travel plans between now and the end of the year. We are. What I thought was really interesting, though, was that despite these high prices, people are planning to travel anyway. In fact, 
48% of U.S. adults are planning an overnight leisure trip this holiday season. That's up five percentage points from yeah. a year ago. But as you mentioned, 77% are modifying their plans due to inflation. I think that's the big theme. People want to travel. They're going to travel. But they're also going to cut some corners to try to save money. Obviously, like all such surveys, it really depends on who you ask. Income and financial security level play a big part in one's decision whether to and how much to travel. Yes, two demographics that stood out would be young adults and people with lower incomes. Those Mm -hmm. are the two groups that are most concerned about these holiday travel costs. I think it makes sense. I mean, for one, a lot of younger adults have lower incomes, so Mm -hmm. there's that crossover. Also, I feel like the holidays are often hosted by the parents or grandparents, and it's those adult children who... head back home, you know, with young kids in tow. And and that can be expensive. You know, I think we have to mention also the resumption of student loan payments as being just one more thing for these 20 and 30 somethings who may already be dealing with high childcare costs and high rents and high home prices and all these things. So, you know, the holidays are a fun time, but people are worried about how they're going to pay for it all. Yeah, that is uh, rather ironic when you really think about it. The people who are probably better equipped to travel are actually the ones that are hosting and people are traveling to their their places. But that setting that aside, as you mentioned, it's not a question of whether people will travel more are actually planning to this year than last becomes a question of downscaling their plans when they travel. How so? The biggest modification is driving instead of flying. We also see some people taking fewer trips or picking cheaper accommodations or cheaper activities. I would add a few saving strategies to this list. One would be use your rewards points and miles. A lot of people are sitting on more value than they realize. Mm -hmm. And also be flexible if you can. I know it's tough around the holidays because it's a very defined time frame, but you know, think about Thanksgiving. So many people fly on Wednesday and Sunday. Could you go a few days earlier or stay a few days later? If you're willing to fly Thanksgiving morning, that's often a deal, comparatively speaking. You know, apply that same logic to the Christmas, New Year's time frame. Try to kind of zig when others zag a little bit. If you can pick the less traffic days, you could save some money and some aggravation. You know, it's interesting. Uh, and again, we always put a lot of focus on retail spending because many retailers depend on the holidays to make bank for the year. This is a very important time for the travel industry as well. I mean, they make a lot of money during the holidays. So this is probably not what they want to see that consumers are scaling back. It's interesting that we see this kind of disconnect sometimes between what people say and what they do. Travel demand has been really robust. Mm -hmm. And even if people say they're making modifications Generally speaking, they're not skipping the trip entirely. They're still going. They might just be going on a little more of a budget. I get the sense that a lot of people are really prioritizing this sort of experiential spending right now. Even as they pull back on buying a lot of physical goods, Mm -hmm. it feels like people are willing to splurge on travel, dining, 
concert tickets, sports tickets. I think a lot of this results from the pandemic and this kind of you only live once attitude. People missed out on this stuff. It actually surprises me the continued strength of the pent up demand. So I'm still optimistic for the travel providers. Even if people are cutting back, I think there's enough people traveling that they're going to do just fine. I I just wonder that if there's any chance that sort of like retail, that that hesitancy to go all out and travel could lead to better deals and added incentives to push consumers to go ahead and make that big trip. I think we'll see much better discounts on the retail front this year than on travel. Mm. I'm not as optimistic about holiday retail. I think it'll be okay, you know, probably eke out a slight gain over last year, but probably not as much as the inflation rate. I feel like people are pulling back on electronics purchases and clothing and toys and a lot of those physical items. I feel like it's this kind of experience first attitude that right. a lot of people feel, which, you know, maybe is not a bad thing too. I mean, we could even sort of take it back to the basics of your presence is the present, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a nice thought that a lot of families could be getting together and, you know, Hey, even if they're buying fewer gifts, if they're willing to prioritize that trip and that time together, yeah, I think that could be seen as a nice thing. And uh, again, as you point out, best advice is to plan early, leverage those rewards programs where you can, and and also try not to uh, let, uh, add travel expenses to your debt load. That's important because the average credit card rate is a record high. It's almost 21%. If at all possible, don't put this on a credit card and finance it. You know, right. it's one thing if you put it on a card, you pay it off right away, you get the rewards and the buyer protections, then that's great. But in terms of financing, that's expensive. I know it's easier said than done, but mm. some good debt payoff strategies include a 0% balance transfer credit card and also just setting money aside from every paycheck. I mean, we still have some time between now and the holidays don't let it catch you by surprise. Yeah, it's not like you didn't know this was coming. <laughs> it happens every year, right about this same time. And this actually kind of goes a little bit beyond uh, the the scope of the survey that we're talking about here. Uh, but as we were talking a little bit uh, earlier, the, the overarching theme, uh, again, be it retail, be it travel, is this sort of I don't want to say malaise to use that uh, Carter administration term, but we do seem to be sort of uh, wedged between a, not not a booming economy, but not an all-out recession. We're kind of in this purgatory in the middle somewhere, and it seems like the longer we stay there, the longer we stay there. We're definitely in this murky middle, yeah. I feel like people have been saying for two years that a recession's right around the corner. Right. It hasn't materialized yet. We actually just got the September retail sales figures, and those were surprisingly upbeat. I was actually surprised. This continued resilience in consumer spending is pretty remarkable. I think a lot of it has to do with the strong job market. Um, but I thought what was interesting about those retail numbers was that a lot of that was physical stuff. You know, I was saying people are gravitating more to experiences, mm-hmm. but you know, we saw e-commerce do well in September. We saw car dealers do well in September. That's kind of surprising given the the high price tag and the strikes and all the kind of negativity. But I think a big theme for me is just that the sentiment is low, but the actual data is coming in more positive. I, I feel like the economy doesn't feel great to people right now, but we're still spending. Yeah. 
Yeah, it'll be interesting to see when all is said and done, when the dust dust settles, uh, how things uh, shake out this uh, upcoming holiday season. Interesting stuff on holiday travel. Again, Ted Rossman from Bankrate with us. We've got the uh, link up on our webpage for more information about the survey we referenced. And Ted, thanks as always. We appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for having me. This is Good Mornings with Chris Oaks on 1330 WFIN, WFIN.com and 95.5 FM. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. How not to impress your ex. A Massachusetts man is facing charges for allegedly setting a house on fire to get his ex-girlfriend's attention. (laughs) He set a house on fire. Not her house. Not his house. Just a random house. Um, Police in Rhode Island arrested... Joe Rigo on multiple charges. They claim the 24-year-old intentionally started a fire at a home over the weekend. He allegedly told investigators he was trying to get his ex's attention because she wouldn't respond to his texts and calls. (laughs) His ex wouldn't respond to all of his texts and all of his calls, so he did what any reasonable person would do. He set fire to someone's home. The homeowners actually observed Mr. Rigo running from their yard, so that's who they knew knew who did it. Fortunately, it doesn't appear that anyone was hurt uh, in the uh, in the blaze. He was charged with not only arson but also possession of narcotics. Surprise, surprise. There was an intoxicating substance involved in this story. (laughs) How not to impress your ex. Uh, Here is a story, how not to impress your ex, part two. A woman is in jail after kidnapping her ex-boyfriend and his new girlfriend. Happened Sunday morning in Memphis. Ashley Todd is accused of pistol-whipping both victims and then assaulting her ex with a chair. Can't imagine why that relationship didn't work out. (laughs) I can't imagine why those two broke up. I mean, they seem so perfect for each other. (laughs) Uh, Ms. Todd allegedly threatened to kill the victims if they tried to leave the home Um, police arrived to find uh, both victims and Ms. Todd inside the residence. She was placed under arrest. Probably won't be getting back with her ex anytime soon. How not to impress your ex. Here's kind of the direct opposite of that story. I don't know if you uh, happen to see this uh, over the weekend. uh, Talk about a quickie wedding. Tori Lindsay and Nick Brendel... Uh, They're from St. Louis, Missouri, exchanged vows in a matter of 10 seconds in front of thousands of NASCAR fans. The couple beat out several other hopefuls to win the Bushlight Pit Stop Wedding, uh, dubbed the fastest wedding imaginable because it was held during race driver Kevin Harvick's pit stop during the race. Uh, The bride wore a white NASCAR racing suit with a veil wrapped around her waist and carried a white rose bouquet decorated with bush light beer cans. 
The groom opted for a white button-up shirt, tie, and boutonniere under a NASCAR jacket with matching pants. Uh, Actor Gerald Downey, who is the Bush guy from the commercials, officiated the wedding. After exchanging vows, Tori and Nick quickly smooched to cheers from the crowd. I don't know if you happen to see it, but uh, (laughs) this is the exact opposite of... How not to impress your ex. How not to impress your bride there. Although, I guess she was up for it. I don't know if I would do that. I don't know if my bride would go for that. But there you go. (laughs) Uh, Caleb Rogers has been sentenced to 12 years in federal prison for ripping off a casino off the strip in Las Vegas. They don't take too kindly to that. Mr. Rogers stole almost $165,000 from actually multiple casinos between November of 2021 and February of 2022. Um, (laughs) He even recruited his younger brother to help rob the Red Rock Casino. U.S. District Judge Andrew Gordon acknowledged that Mr. Rogers had a gambling problem and ordered him to pay restitution of a little more than $85,000 to the casinos. What's interesting in this story is that uh, Mr. Rogers is actually a Las Vegas police officer. And still is. Even though he's been sentenced to 12 years in federal prison, he's still technically a police officer. He's just been suspended pending an investigation by the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. He's technically still employed. Although, I think we know how that investigation is going to go at this point. Don't we? Don't we? I would hope so. Uh, Let's see. A couple of other items in the broken news this morning. Residents in Great Falls, Montana are being invaded. Not by tourists. Not by illegal aliens. But by tumbleweeds. On Tuesday, the town was overwhelmed by powerful winds of over 30 miles an hour and gusts of 50 miles an hour that brought with them a mess of tumbleweeds piled several feet high, nearly covering some houses in the town. Resident Peyton Johnson tells local news reporters that while occasional tumbleweeds are not unusual, it is big sky country, After all, uh, she's never seen it this bad. I heard it was bad because my husband was out earlier, but I didn't think it was this bad. I was pretty shocked. I feel bad for some of these people. I don't know what they're going to do. Last summer, it kind of built up a little bit, but nothing like this. People's houses being buried in tumbleweeds. Uh, Marshall with the Great Falls Fire and Rescue told uh, local news reporters they are reviewing options for clearing the area, but honestly, they're not quite sure where to begin. Tumbleweeds invading the town of Great Falls. And finally, in the broken news this morning, from the international file, police in Kelowna, Kelowna, is that how you pronounce it? Kelowna? British Columbia. British Columbia, Canada. Police shot a man following a brief standoff at a porta potty <laughs> this past Wednesday. <laughs> a standoff in a porta potty. Apparently, eyewitnesses say heavily armed officers abruptly descended 
uh, on the uh, street and trained their weapons on a porta potty situated on an empty lot. The guy must have been in there 20 minutes or so. He then came out and they shot him. Just because he was in the porta potty for 20 minutes? Um, I, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Witnesses said the suspect went about 11 yards, 30 feet or so, before police opened fire. The suspect uh, was still alive but carted away in an ambulance. Police provided no further information. Like, what caused the standoff to begin with in the porta potty? Maybe was he just taking too long? I mean, I know that can be annoying, but is that worth SWAT teams responding? I don't know. There you go. Uh, there's got to be something more to that story that we don't yet know, but we'll follow up. There you go. That is uh, today's broken news report. An update on the odd and unusual side of the headlines. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. When local news breaks, you can hear about it on social media at lightning speed. And while getting you the information fast is important, WFIN will always present the story only after verifying with actual sourced facts. This is WFIN News Director Matt Demchek. Trust the voice that's been covering the news in Finley and Hancock County for more than 80 years. You can depend on us to get the story right every time on social media, 1330 WFIN, WFIN.com and at 95.5 FM. And now your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. So we're coming up on the holiday travel season and the online travel website Skyscanner uh, put out a a survey uh, with the top behaviors that most irk airline passengers. And most of the time, these are things that people who don't fly very often will do sometimes not even realizing how annoying they are to those around them. So, with that in mind, if you are going to be traveling, if you're going to be flying for the upcoming holiday, keep in mind these are the top seven behaviors that most irk your fellow online uh, airline passengers. Don't do these things. From bottom to top, number seven, asking someone to switch seats. Don't do that. Number six, using both armrests on your seat. Uh, Share that space. Reclining your seat is number five. That can be especially annoying on many planes where you're packed in really tightly. You recline the seat. It can be a major annoyance for the people behind you. Uh, Number four is taking off your shoes or socks. Don't do that. That is a big no-no. Number three... Being a chatty seatmate, engaging in conversations with strangers during the flight. It's seen as an invasion of one's personal space. So generally, maybe a little chit-chat is fine, but keep it to a minimum. That is uh, number three. Taking second place, and 40% of those in the survey said that this was uh, annoying, the use of speaker phones. If you're watching a movie or listening to music or talking to someone uh, on the plane, plug in your headphones or, you know, use Bluetooth or whatever person. Don't use a speakerphone. I don't want to hear that. And the number one worst behavior, most cringeworthy behavior, 42% in the survey found this utterly offensive, personal grooming. 
painting your nails, clipping your nails, any other type of in-flight beauty treatment. It is a unanimous plea from your fellow passengers, save your grooming for the privacy of your own home or at your destination. Well, finally, to your health this morning, myopia, what we commonly call nearsightedness, is becoming an epidemic. According to the American Academy of Optometry, nearly 50% of North America's population, nearly 50% of the population of North America will have myopia by the end of this decade. So why has this become increasingly common? Joining us is Dr. Felicia Timmerman, pediatric optometrist at Cooper Vision. So let's start with that basic question, or maybe it's not so basic. Why? What's going on here? Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, we're just seeing an overall prevalence in North America, by, by the end of the decade, as you mentioned, uh, you know, 50% of the population will be living with this condition. But we're also seeing this prevalence in children. And the reason why is just how they're living their everyday lifestyles. So it's a lot of that decreased time outdoors. So we want to increase that as much as possible to an hour and a half to two hours a day as a protective factor in either delaying or preventing the onset of myopia. But we also know that this increase in using near devices, such as the tablets, computer, as well as those cell phones, are also having an association in its development as well as its progression as well. So why is that? I mean, from a medical point of view, why is the cell phone use, the tablet use, uh, the screen time, staring at those screens any different than, say, spending hours on end reading a book or uh, looking at a painting or, you know, whatever it might happen to be? Yeah, so it really is just all that near work in general. And it's because our eyes are adapting to that environment of working up close. Hmm. And that's where we're really seeing that overall association. So trying to take frequent breaks and relaxing our eyes as much as possible anytime we're doing those near activities can have a beneficial impact, you know, in what it means in that myopia development and progression. Now, as you pointed out, and I think this is important to underscore, we're not just talking about 50% of the adult population uh, being affected by this. This is becoming increasingly common among children as well, again, for the same reasons. What are some of the warning signs that we can watch for? Yeah, absolutely. So myopia, which is the same as nearsightedness. So this is going to cause blurry vision, uncorrected, meaning without glasses or contact lenses, out in the distance where faraway objects look blurry. And really, some of those warning signs are going to be squinting because this may allow the child to see things a little bit more clearly or sharper when trying to view those out in the distance, as well as they're going to move closer to the object as well to bring it into clarity or focus. They might also start stating that they have headaches or pain around their eyes or just an overall fatigue because of that blurred vision. And many children will actually just avoid the task or activity altogether because of that blurred vision. 
And that's important, especially in the kids, to be able to recognize those outward warning signs because they may not necessarily be able to tell you what's going on or even recognize that something is off because they, as kids, don't have uh, the kind of point of reference uh, that, that we would have as adults. So particularly important to watch for those outward signs for children. You're absolutely correct on that. Children are resilient, and they find ways to adapt. And many times, if they're just living with blurred vision and have never seen clear vision, they don't know that that blur is abnormal. You're absolutely correct. And this can impact uh, not just uh, their participation in activities or their just uh, enjoyment of of being out and being able to see things. This can uh, affect them academically. I mean, there are any number of ways that this impacts particularly children. Yeah, just their everyday activities of how they're learning and just how they're playing in their overall environment. Right. So, uh, again, let's say we recognize this and it's becoming increasingly common. So speaking to an increasing number of people uh, who will say, I recognize these warning signs in my kids, what then? Yeah, so the great news is is we have an FDA-approved product to not only correct the vision in children, so just like they would in standard glasses or contact lenses, but it also has the dual benefit of that innovative technology of these contact lenses to slow down the progression of myopia. So we're not seeing these big changes year after year. And that's beneficial because when you think about myopia as it gets worse, that just means that that blur out in the distance is going to get worse. And also, we know that myopia is associated with complications later on in life with the eye, so it's going to help minimize that risk by slowing that progression altogether. So just to clarify, this is a condition that cannot necessarily be reversed per se, but it can be treated and the progression can be slowed. Exactly. So we can never reverse myopia, unfortunately, but we can definitely, with the MySight One Day Contact Lens, be able to slow that progression down. And to that end, you were mentioning some of the things that we can kind of proactively do. Let's mention again uh, some of the the things that uh, folks can be doing or encouraging their kids to do that can prevent this in the first place. Absolutely. So first is really increasing that outdoor time because we know it's a protective factor in being able to delay or prevent the onset of myopia. So recommendation is one and a half to two hours of outdoor play, as well as to minimize that screen time as much as possible and really making sure those children are using appropriate working distance when working up close. So at least half an arm's distance away or more. And then, of course, I always encourage that annual eye exam with an eye care provider to not only make sure that those eyes are nice and healthy, but also to see if they are a candidate for the MySight one-day contact lens if the child does have myopia. Again, Dr. Felicia Timmerman is a pediatric optometrist at Cooper Vision. Where do we get now? Again, as we always say with respect to any kind of uh, medical information, the best source of info for your specific situation is going to be your doctor, uh, your optometrist in this uh, case. Uh, But where do we go for kind of more general information, resources, that kind of thing? Absolutely. So Cooper Vision has a lot of education on their MySight.com website. So that's M-I-S-I-G-H-T.com. To learn more about myopia, the importance of myopia management, and to learn more about the MySight One Day Contact Lens. 
Dr. Felicia Timmerman, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Appreciate you taking time for this topic. Thank you so much. And that will finish up our podcast for today. I want to thank all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. And remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about on the program at our webpage. Check us out online at goodmornings.net. Coming up tomorrow, it's the final week of the high school football regular season as teams gear up for the playoffs. We'll get a complete preview. And our Around the World tour continues with a collection of German recipes from Kyra's Kitchen. So until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.